I'm a guy who's from Joburg. I, I worked in London for seven years. I enjoy fishing. I enjoy mountain biking. I enjoy talking rubbish to friends at a braai. In a lot of ways, Stephen McGowan is like many other South African guys in their 40s. But in one particular respect, he is not. It just so happened that I was kidnapped for six years. But I don't want to be defined as the guy who was kidnapped for six years, because I, I believe I'm more than that. Steve McGowan was captured by Al-Qaeda in northern Mali in 2011 and kept hostage in the desert for almost six years. Since his release in 2017, he has been putting his world back together in Johannesburg. With a book about his experience due to be published shortly, we're asking, how do you get back to normal life after being the longest standing Al-Qaeda captive in history? Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. I'm Rebecca Davis. McGowan estimates that over the last three years, he's told the story of his Al-Qaeda incarceration in public about 150 times. He's spoken about it at corporates and schools and events. He's given countless media interviews, both locally and internationally. But this year, he's been reliving the events of those surreal six years in the desert even more intensely than usual, because he's been telling his story to writer Tudor Caradoc Davies over hours and hours of interviews for a book to be published by Daily Maverick's publishing imprint, Maverick 451, in November. Because of the COVID-19 lockdown, the two men have never met. All their discussions have happened over Zoom. And given the intensity of the subject matter, both acknowledge that these sessions have sometimes been very grueling. Steve says no matter how many times he tells the tale, there are elements which still have the ability to catch him unawares. You know, I've been out the desert now for just over three years, and I probably haven't quite dealt with everything on a deeper level. What caught me off guard the one day during a talk, actually, was I was discussing being handcuffed, and I ended up in tears. And that blew me away, you know, because this is something which happened so many times in the desert, and it stole your movement, it stole your freedom. It was, it was incredibly debilitating, but I had no idea that it ran deep on a mental level. What is perhaps more astonishing is how balanced Steve McGowan sounds, given everything he's been through. Steve's normal life ended on 25th November, 2011. He'd been living and working with his wife, Catherine, in London for the previous seven years. Steve was in finance, Catherine was a speech therapist. In 2011, the couple decided it was time to pack up their life in the UK and move home to South Africa to settle down. Catherine was happy to fly back to Johannesburg, but Steve wanted one last big adventure. He decided to ride his motorbike through Europe and Africa. On the day that would change everything, Stephen was in the Malian capital, Timbuktu, with a few European tourists he'd met on his travels. They were relaxing at their hotel when a group of armed men stormed in and dragged them into a vehicle. A German man who tried to resist was shot dead on the spot. 
Steve, a Dutch man and a Swedish man, were driven out into the desert and told that they were now hostages of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. They were guarded by heavily armed jihadists, chained up at night and made to move camps every two weeks to avoid detection. This was Steve's life for almost six years. Intermittently, his captors would make him record messages for his family and the South African government in the hope of securing a ransom for his release. My name is Stephen McGowan. I'm a South African citizen. Today's date is Tuesday the 20th of October 2015. Short message to the South African government. I thank you for your continued efforts in, in, in negotiating my release. My wife and my family, I am well. I, I hope you are all well back home. I understand that I may be seeing you soon. Um, I believe that there is an organization involved now, a South African organization involved, brokering the release. I thank this organization. Um, I thank this organization for everything, for really, for, for bringing this to a close and having me home soon. I, uh, I thank you. With local authorities seemingly unable to negotiate Steve's freedom, his family contacted local NGO Gift of the Givers, which had successfully intervened in such situations before. The exact circumstances surrounding Steve's eventual release in 2017 are still shrouded in mystery. Although the New York Times reported that a large ransom was paid, both the South African government and Gift of the Givers deny it. However it happened, on 29th July 2017, Steve McGowan was a free man. Although Steve was overjoyed to be back home and reunited with his family, he describes his adjustment as very difficult. When I came out, my norm was desert. My norm was running away from aeroplanes, surveillance planes, trying to stay out of the sun. And when I came back to Joburg, a lot of the conversations were really about private school problems and people buying a fancy car and people doing renovations on their houses. After six years in the desert, there was much about Joburg life that seemed utterly overwhelming to him. One was the sheer sensory overload of the urban environment. There's no smells in the desert. There only are like three or four colors in the desert. And it's incredibly sterile. And there's a beauty in that, actually. You know? And there's no sounds. I think for the first year, my ears absolutely screamed. The, the ringing in my ears from the dead silence was incredible. Another profound challenge to his readjustment was how much time Steve had lost, how much had happened while he was in captivity. His mother had passed away just a few months before his release. At the time when he was kidnapped, none of his friends had children. He returned to find kids everywhere in his social sphere, whose early lives he had been entirely absent for. And it wasn't just personal stuff he'd missed out on. It was also global news, political developments, advances in technology. Steve says he's still caught out regularly. Just last year, he was telling a friend how much he admired Apple founder Steve Jobs and couldn't wait to see what Steve Jobs would come up with next. His friend had to gently break it to him that Steve Jobs died in 2011. The desert wasn't entirely an informational black hole. At night, his captors would listen to shortwave radio, and occasionally Steve could make out what was being discussed in French or Arabic. I heard quite a bit about South African politics. Funnily enough, I heard about Inkandla. I heard that Jacob Zuma, President Jacob Zuma, was actually up in North Africa, in West Africa. And I thought he was there to try and get me out the desert, actually. But it turns out I spent another three years there, so he wasn't there for me. 
And I heard about Julius Malema dancing in Parliament saying, give back the money. That still left a lot of gaps in his cultural knowledge. Steve says that when he was freed, there were about five topics he felt he could talk about. Beyond that, he was lost. In fact, he describes feeling as if he'd had a lobotomy. Steve was also in bad physical shape. He'd lost 16 kilograms during his incarceration. To work on his health, he joined a cycling group in Johannesburg, where nobody knew his backstory. But his lack of familiarity with current cycling equipment soon marked him out as different. So I'd be cycling along and say, hey, um, that's a nice watch you got. You know, what is that? He goes, oh, no, it's a, it's a Garmin, for example. I'm like, oh, fantastic. What does it do? Oh, it does heart rate and this, that, and GPS. I'm like, wow, you know, what does it cost? And these guys probably looked at me like, this guy's a bit of a moron. You know, this is standard stuff. If you enjoy your cycling, this is standard stuff. And then I'd say, yeah, so, you know, what do you do with it? He goes, oh, no, I put it onto Strava. And I'm like, oh, so what's Strava? And, and, and then these guys just thought, my hat, who invited this guy to come cycle with us? Some of these guys were asking, you know, who's this guy? Why is he asking such strange questions? And, and you know, what, like, what the hell's Uber? What is Uber? I mean, I mean, really, where's this guy been? There was another quite profound change in Steve, which his family and friends struggled to come to terms with. In order to get through his time in the desert, he explains that as much as possible, he simply tried to assimilate to his environment. I ended up having to survive. It was just survival, and I ended up seeing myself as, I suppose, a pale Arab. Steve learned Arabic, and he also converted to Islam around six months into his confinement. It was a move which was partly strategic at the time, since it won him better treatment from his captors. But he also describes it as providing him with genuine spiritual solace. I came out the desert being Muslim, and I was not quite sure how I would be accepted back into SA within my peers. There was obviously a lot of anger, as, as one can imagine, you know. I mean, I was kidnapped by Al-Qaeda for six years, and it took a huge toll on my family, you know. And my mom passed away while I was in the desert. And my wife and I, you know, we were married for four years before I got kidnapped for almost six years. And all my friends, I mean, they also went through absolute hell. So, so when I came back, there were a lot of people who were incredibly angry about Al-Qaeda and about, you know, what they did to me. He says he doesn't consider himself a practicing Muslim today, but that there is much about the Islamic faith that he carries with him and continues to admire. I think one of the things about Steve's experience that is hardest for outsiders to understand is that he genuinely doesn't consider it all bad. In fact, Tudor, the writer who's working on the book with Steve, says there are quite a few light-hearted anecdotes in the story. Here's one. Five-a-side soccer with Al-Qaeda. Yep, that's Tudor reminding Steve of the good times playing five-a-side soccer with armed jihadists. Something Steve describes as kind of a bucket list experience. I was in the middle of nowhere, probably up against the Algerian border, in a wadi, a dry riverbed. And, I mean, it was absolutely beautiful. I had the, the swallows migrating across my head. And I was standing in this, this yellow sand with these green trees bridging the edge of this, of this wadi. Off the edge of that with just these black stone mountains. And then above that was this blue sky. And, I mean, it was, it was outlandish. It was absolutely incredible. And I sat there running around with a bunch of guys who had no idea what football was. And they just wanted to kick the ball as hard as they could in any direction. So, so, that, so that game lasted about a day. And then the thing had a thousand punctures, a thousand um, thorn holes in it from all the acacia trees. But, but I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's, it's, it's what an insane thing to ever have experienced. 
But one of the many things that makes Steve's experience sound incredibly destabilizing was how quickly he could be jolted out of these relatively pleasant moments with the stark reminder of exactly what was happening to him. One example, since Steve had done his best to develop fairly friendly relations with his captors, they suggested that he might perhaps be interested in joining their jihad himself. Here's Tudor. He told me how he had this moment where he's going like, you know, what have I become? Because one moment he's playing five-a-side football with these guys and then there's a mujahid who is telling a story about cutting someone's head off. And then he's being asked to join jihad. So there's this incredible clash of who he was as Steve and who he was as Lot, which was his Muslim name, and who Al-Qaeda thought he could be if he totally joined them. In case it needs spelling out, Steve declined. Look, I slaughtered a few animals. I wasn't going to slaughter any people. It just didn't sit comfortably with me. It struck me that after six years in such intimate proximity to the inner workings of Al-Qaeda, Steve must be viewed as potentially quite an asset by the global intelligence community. One can imagine that the CIA in particular must have been itching to sit down with Steve after his release. For obvious reasons, he's a bit cagey about the details, but he confirms that he has been through quite a few debriefing sessions. I think I am currently the longest held Al-Qaeda hostage in the world, okay, which is something. But at the same time, I also, my strategic approach in the desert, from a strategic point of view to actually stay alive with Al-Qaeda and also a strategic point of view to actually stay human for myself and my family, was really to place myself around Al-Qaeda whenever I could and to try and make a normal environment that I could flourish, inverted commas, flourish, that I could actually be human and, and not, camp, not come out a changed person. But because of this, because of my strategy and placing myself around Al-Qaeda, I got a lot of intel. I probably got more intel than pretty much every other prisoner who's been taken by Al-Qaeda, I, w- I would guess. You might expect someone who's been through what Steve has to emerge with a lot of bitterness and anger towards the captors who stole six years of his life from him. But instead, Steve has come out of it with, if not sympathy for Al-Qaeda, then certainly a greater understanding of what militant Islamic groups like this are about. I'm not taking a side here, but I've seen it from both sides. I, and I now understand exactly what Al-Qaeda, what they are doing, you know, what is their purpose. And in certain respects, I can empathize with them. You don't want to be the person who's continually kicked. You want to you want to eventually stand up for yourself and say, I have pride in myself and I'm going to take a stand. And that is, that is basically a small piece of what Al-Qaeda are doing, besides the whole what's within the Qur'an about jihad and all the rest. At the end of the day, people want dignity as well. After his release, Steve didn't go back to his career in finance. Instead, he's been working on a long-standing dream, which is just about to come to fruition. On a family farm in the Karoo, he's opening a drug rehab and skills development centre. He says he's looking forward to moving to the Karoo, All that space, those endless skies, perhaps a bit like the desert, which he says he hasn't returned to yet. But the thought of that seems oddly safe and familiar. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because I think I actually would feel quite at home um, in the desert. I think, I think I was saying to Tudor that, you know, if I was placed up on a sand dune and, and I took my flip-flops off and I got my feet nicely entrenched in the desert sand, I think I would be right. Where's the well? Where's the goat? Let's go and make lunch. Six Years with Al-Qaeda, the Stephen McGowan story, will be published by Maverick 451 in late November. 
Keep an eye on the Daily Maverick website for details. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji with sound engineering, editing and support by Bernard Kotzer, Tevya Turok-Shapiro and Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to The Daily Maverick's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We love making this podcast, and ideally we'd like to keep making it until podcasts are replaced by a new kind of technology. But to do so, we really need your help. We ask you to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, not simply to boost our egos, though we love that too, but because reviews and ratings make it easier for other people to find us. Thanks again for your support. Thanks again for your support.